In this episode of Software Sessions, I'm talking to Pete Snyder about the many ways websites track us, how ad blockers like uBlock Origin work, and the process of developing web standards with privacy in mind. We start by discussing his role as a senior privacy researcher at Brave Software. Brave is kind of interesting or unique as a startup in that we have a, a proper research lab. I think our research team is seven or eight people right now. And so those are people who do research in, in the form of published publications, but also doing research that ties back into products some way. So my research responsibilities are to figure out new ways that you can improve browser privacy, address tracking on the web, and solve the kinds of problems that Brave is interested in solving. I have one foot in an engineering world and one foot in publishing world. Why is academic research important in this space? My gut feeling is that what's useful about academic research is that it, it changes the incentives and it gives you a chance to do things that are more novel and particularly things that are less tied to a short-term ROI kind of cycle. And so that is particularly useful for things that have like watchdog functions over industry, things that are more difficult to monetize but more useful to maybe average web users. That's not to say there aren't people who try to build businesses around privacy or, or responsible computing, but the incentives don't always work that way. So what's really neat about uh, doing a research-focused computing career, you can do things that don't have to you know, make somebody money in the short term. You can pick more oddball projects, things that, uh, that might not come to fruition right away. And is there a key difference in how you approach a problem when you're doing it in an academic context versus as a product for a company? Sure, yeah. I mean, so they go both ways. So if I'm working for something at Brave, the emphasis is on correctness and certainty and knowing that when we ship it to 10 million people or whatever, that it's not going to break and it's going to do what it says in the tin and that it's going to be like a material improvement over the state of things before we ship that feature. And that's really different than if you're trying to come up with a research project where sometimes good, sometimes bad, but the emphasis is not necessarily on 100% correctness, but is on novelty. Um, and doing something or, or figuring out some way to solve a problem in a way that hasn't been tackled before. And so you'll read research papers that say it works 95% of the time, and that'll be you know sufficient or compelling for a research paper, but you wouldn't want to ship something that breaks you know on tw- like one out of 20 websites if you're actually making a product. And so the goals are different, but also like the success criteria are different. So it sounds like you can tackle things where it wouldn't be good enough for a product yet but it's something that if you were working on it within the context of a company, they might say like, oh, we're not going to do that because it just doesn't seem like it's going to work. Yeah, exactly. So maybe because it's not going to, like certainty of, of success isn't there or there isn't a one or two step obvious path to, to being a product. You know, maybe it conflicts with the, with a current business goal or, or, or whatever else. But yeah, you have, you have, there's a much more latitude on, in terms of projects you can choose and kind of problems you want to tackle if you're, if you're writing research papers. And likewise, like, not that I'm some incredible researcher or anything, but if you're trying to do successful research, like, it doesn't reward you to, like, solve that final, like, 5% of the problem. There's no benefit to getting, no, not none, but, but there's a small benefit of going from 95% to 99%, like, success or accuracy. Well, in product, like, you have to grind out as close to 100 as you can get. And do you have examples of, of things where you worked on it in a research context and it actually became a, a part of a product? Sure, yeah. Um, so a couple things. One is that, uh, so there's a, a research paper that we wrote at Brave called SpeedReader. Um, SpeedReader is a different way of doing like a reader mode in a browser. Right now, if you use 
any of the reader modes in popular browsers. You download the page, you render some subset of it, you throw some JavaScript at it and it extracts sections that it thinks are useful and it presents a new page to you. That's not 100% correct. Chrome's uh, DOM distiller does something slightly different, but to approximation, you render the page and then you extract stuff out of it. Brave's speed reader does something different. It intercepts it at a network layer. It, ex it examines the, the text HTML, does the analysis there, and then feeds that back to the rendering engine. And so there's a bunch of nice benefits there. There's a privacy improvement in that you're executing less code, talking to less third parties. Um, there's a performance improvement as well um, in that you don't have to do the initial displaying and tear all that stuff down and build it back up. So that was a research paper that uh, we published at www. 2018, 2019, I don't remember, but either a year or two ago, and it's uh, now in beta and Brave. So that's maybe the oldest one, um, and the most recent one also um, was a project that I did last summer with a student from North Carolina, Quan Chen, uh, on figuring out ways that we can do blocking better. So it, right now, if you're using like, a privacy tool in a browser, in most cases, you're downloading a big list of things that should get blocked. They look kind of like regular expressions. It says, yes, block this, no, don't block that. And it's a useful thing, but it has the trade-off of, you know, it's very easy to circumvent that. Somebody can just change the URL, move it to a different domain, inline it in the page, whatever else. And so the approach that we took in this paper is, let's not focus on the URL, let's build signatures of, of the execution paths of, uh, of these scripts, and we can use that as like the oracle to identify this is known bad or known good. And well, that machinery ended up being very complicated and it ended up, uh, and this is something we want to ship to all our users because of the performance hit, it's something that we use for generating filter lists that we ship down to, to users regularly. Existing projects, you were saying, are just looking at uh, a list of URLs, and you said using something like regular expressions to figure out if the URL it's pulling is on that list. The part I wasn't clear about is the, the sort of new way that you were mm. describing worked. Yeah, so the alternative approach that we came up with uh, is to instead not care about like where the code came from or even how the code is structured, so if it's obfuscated in some way. Uh, but instead to um, look at the, the DOM and um, JavaScript operations that the code executes and sequence those and use that as the identifying like signature of the code. There's some cleverness in there that makes that particularly difficult to do in JavaScript versus other languages. But at a high level, it was saying, let's identify things based on their behavior, not on their, their source. And so would that be where the browser would have to load the script, see how it would affect the DOM, and then based on that, you would determine whether or not this was something that was probably showing you an ad or trying to track you, that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, so, so the, the way the project kind of worked toe to tip is there's these long, long, long lists of, of things that people previously have identified as being tracking-related or ad-related. Those are things like easy list and easy privacy and the uBlock origin lists and all this kind of stuff. And so you can throw those at the web and you get some kind of nice label data set of these things are tracking and ads related, these things are benign. So you can run those, execute those files or, or, or load those pages and get signatures of how, those, how that code operates in the page. And so now you have like your ground truth signatures of this is what known bad code does and this is what known good code does. Then you can run that stuff against a bunch of things that haven't, like you don't know the labels of. And you can rebuild those labels on top of this, this code that people haven't examined before. And so you can do a couple of things with that. You can either use that to build even more lists in an automated way. Um, you can use it to do code rewriting, since you know some parts are good and some parts are bad. You can use it for online blocking, things like that. You're basically looking at things that, that people, that humans have identified as being bad behavior or tracking behavior. And uh, you can load things that you haven't seen before 
and use that to to almost generate instead of having a human curate the list, you could have your your code basically load things that it hasn't seen before and figure out like, oh, this looks like this thing that I've seen before that somebody said was bad. And so I'm gonna make a new list based on that. Yeah, exactly. So so for the you know, Alexa 1000 or Alexa 10,000, like the most popular sites on the web, those have a lot of eyes on them. And so things that are tracking related get picked up, you know, pretty fast on those. But for the long, long, long tail of the web, that stuff is rarely examined or, or at least, you know, has a lot less eyes on it. And so this is a way that you can kind of use the, the code that people have looked at to identify code that fewer people have looked at. I guess on a broad sense, like how deeply are people being tracked? And, and do you think people are aware of just how deeply they're being tracked? So in the first case, like unimaginably so, like the the amount of like web surveillance and, and offline surveillance that people go undergo, like unimaginable. People who study it don't realize, you know, a large amount. And then the second case, like almost very little. Like you'll find these tools that, like Brave or or the new version of Safari or AdBlock Plus or you know the, any of these or Black Origin, good tools by people who are like sincerely trying to to reduce this stuff. And they'll point a little like you know number in the in the URL bar and I'll say ten trackers on this page or whatever. And you'll go to some news site and it'll have like ninety five or whatever. Like and that's just like the known bad stuff. I think people have very little understanding of how atrocious the situation is. And and what are some of the ways that that people are being tracked by their browser? Well, so I should say like in, in most cases the tracking isn't being done by the browser. Like that's not necessarily the case. Chrome absolutely is like observe things about what you're doing and, and send it to the Google Google mothership. But in, in general, the tracking isn't happening because of the browser itself, but rather by things the browser is, is loading because of, of things the web pages tell it to do. So, But um, yeah, so there's a whole long tale of like extremely boring, everybody understands kind of things that have been around for 20 years to like more weirdo stuff. And, and so by far, like still the most common method that people are tracked is just using, I drop a cookie, I drop a cookie on one site, I fetch the same image on another site, and so the cookie gets resent, and that's my way of, of learning the same person visited site A and site B. Web browsers like Safari and Brave will never send third-party cookies with a very small number of exceptions. Firefox and Edge have a, a kind of complicated system for determining when they send third-party cookies, but, but do a good job of not sending them to the, the worst offenders. Then things get slightly more sophisticated, so instead of like, dropping cookies, maybe what you'll do is throw storage into other places where people don't usually look for it. So right now there's at least four or five different APIs, six different APIs you can use to have persistent storage on the browser, do JavaScript, and then there's a whole long like tale of ways that things can get cached that also turn into persistent identifiers. That's like maybe the, the second weirdest or second most understood. Then there's a whole bunch of places where like the browser is implicitly keeping like global state that you wouldn't necessarily think about as being a tracking vector, but anytime you have global state, you have like the, the mechanism you need for tracking. And so kind of like the most Frustrating example of these is something called um, uh, HSTS tracking or HSTS cookies. Are you familiar with HSTS? Is um, it's an abbreviation for a header that a website can send you that says, "Always automatically upgrade this request to an encrypted version, to an HTTPS version, even if I request it over HTTP." So just in general, what would happen is I make I make a request to some website I, I like, and it's going to be HTTPS. HSTS instructions are not respected over HTTP generally. But I make a request to a website I like, it sends back this HSTS instruction that says, good, now that we have a secure conversation, I want you to never, ever not communicate with me over a secure channel. So we got this one com secure communication, we're going to use this as like the kernel of trust to build the rest of our communication over. And so that instructs me every time I, I visit the site again, automatically 
the, the browser will just know, add an S to the HTTPS. And the same thing is true for, for any sub-requests or in general until people start coming up with countermeasures. The same thing is true of any, any sub-requests as well. If I understand correctly, you make a request to a URL and it, it tells your browser, in the future, you try to go to this URL and you don't put an HTTPS to automatically go to HTTPS instead. And the, the part that I, I don't quite follow is, is how is that used to uniquely identify you? Ah, okay. Step one is I, I make a request to your website. It's, it's a secure, secure connection. Then on your website, say you have 26 different images, you know, an A, a B, a C, a D, a D, a D. And so my browser will make new requests for each of those images. And those images in this configuration are each hosted on different subdomains on your website. A images off a.u.com, that kind of thing. So now, if those are all requested over a secure channel, your server can decide I'm going to send the HSTS instruction or not for each request. So I'll get back those images, and I'll have more or less 13 new HSTS instructions. And those will be different for me than they will be for you, for anybody else, just you know, flipping a coin enough times. That's like the setting the identifier step. And then now, a week later or whatever, you want to identify me again. I clear my cookies and everything, so I think I'm, I'm not identifiable. But I come back to your site, and now you have me request the same 26 images, but over uh, HTTP, not a secure channel. And now my browser will upgrade more or less 13 of those images. Your server will look to see which 13 images got upgraded. And now that'll be unique to me versus everybody else in the world. I see. Wow. So it's it's a feature that had good intent, but the way that people are actually using it is they're building like a fingerprint, right? They know for each URL, which one they told you to be able to upgrade HTTPS and which one's not. And like you said, so even if you clear your your cookies or whatever, the URLs that should be upgraded based on HSTS, they're still stored in your browser. Yep. And so there's, there's a long tail of these kinds of things where they were added to the web platform or to browsers or to the internet infrastructure for largely or completely benign or, or really desirable reasons. But because of the way they've been implemented or because of the way clever people have misused them, they become tracking vectors. HSTS is not at all the only one. It's just the one that is kind of the most galling because it's supposed to be you know, helping people's security and ends up hurting their privacy or can hurt their privacy. Right. So in the past, you were talking about classic tracking that was making use of cookies and that's something that gets stored in the user's browser. And my understanding is that for cookies in the past, you would go to a site and in order to track somebody while you're on that site, you're making a request to another domain, right? Like to a, a tracking domain. And as you go from site to site, those other sites use a cookie from that same tracking domain. So that's, that's what you consider a, a third-party cookie. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, so I would go to your site. Your site is you know, benign.com. Your site includes an image from tracker.com. I get the request back from tracker.com. It tells me to save a cookie from tracker.com. I go to some new website. It also requests tracker.com, and now tracker.com can link those, those views. Mm-hmm. And, and so now that you were saying a lot of browsers like Brave and, and Safari and, and Firefox are starting to block third-party cookies, what are some of the ways that sites are, are working around that? So there's a long tail. So some people have been moving to these kinds of more esoteric kind of tracking things. So HSTS tracking is one kind of thing that, that people in the wild were doing, particularly against Safari when Safari started blocking third-party cookies. 
been moving to different types of identifiers in the browser. So maybe maybe I don't store something in a third-party cookie, but I, I set a cookie on the first-party cookie jar, and then I just append that to my request. So things like Google Analytics do that. It's called writing on the first-party cookie jar because even though the code is, is executed by, say, Google Analytics or any number of other tracking scripts, it's actually living in, in your cookie jar. The, the cookie jar is associated with your origin. So the, those are two. And then it just kind of gets more oddball from there. So there's um, browser fingerprinting, if you're familiar with this, which is ways of finding like things that are semi-identifying or semi-unique in your browser. And then if you build up enough of them, you very quickly can identify a large number of people uniquely. It's like, guess who? And you just split the population in half enough times. So that's done extremely commonly on the web. That's very, very common. And then there's a new kind of thing called bounce tracking. Not, it's not that new, but increasingly common kind of thing called bounce tracking where different browsers will only let you set third-party state if you visited them in the first-party context. And so websites will play these games where like, they'll just forward you through a long number of first parties before you get to where you want to go. And now all these things can set third-party cookies on your in iframes and things like that. I could go on and on. I mean, there's, this, there's an endless number of ways these things are done, but... Getting rid of third-party cookies is definitely an extremely helpful thing, but it, it, it's not the end-all be-all of, of web privacy. One of the things you mentioned was browser fingerprinting. What are some of the ways that people's browsers get fingerprinted? Sure. At a high level, browser fingerprinting is looking for a bunch of things that are going to be different between people's browsers. They don't have to be unique to a single person, but they'll be minor configuration differences or, or subtleties that are different between my browser and your browser and somebody else's browser. For example, so, you know, English is a very common language that's spoken on the web. And so if I know that someone's language, maybe that gives me, you know, that identifies me one out of 20 people speak English on the web or, or something like that. Yeah, some number that's less than one or less than 100, I mean, uh, 100%. And so then now I've, you know, I've cut out uh, a large portion of the web. And now I look at and see, is this person running a Mac? That's going to also cut the search space down. And now I look, is this person... How many devices do they have plugged into their machine? That'll shrink it down further. What are the kind of peculiarities of their graphics card when I do different drawing operations? Does it do, you know, draw a line in a slightly different way than on a different graphics card? That'll search, shrink it down further. Does the, does the system have odd fonts installed? It'll shrink it down further, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you have enough of these kinds of things, you can pretty quickly put a lot of people in, in a bucket of size one. Mm. And one of the things you mentioned is that you can identify what devices are plugged into your computer and maybe what your graphics card is. What are some things you, you think people would find surprising about how much your, your browser is actually sending to the server that you're visiting? Hmm. Um, so it depends on the browser that you're using, but I th that's a good question. I expect people would be surprised that any web page that you don't trust, so this is without a permission, uh, websites can in some browsers, enumerate all the devices you have installed, like the labels, the type, this kind of thing. They can learn about what kind of network connection you're on, whether you're plugged in. If you're in Chrome, the most popular browser, you can learn about the kinds of network errors the person is, is observing, which can be very identifying if you're moving between networks and they have different kind of DNS configurations. If somebody has a two-factor authentication device, like a, like a hardware key, you can learn some things about the hardware key, like the, the strength of it, even if you wouldn't expect a website can, can access that automatically. Those are just things like the browser is intending for websites to be able to access. That's not like cleverness. That's just like there is an API that will tell me specifically this. And then there's a long list of other things with a moderate amount of cleverness you can figure out as well. 
I think a lot of people are familiar with the fact that when they go to websites, it'll ask for permission to use a microphone or to use GPS, things like that. Uh, for some of these other things that you're referring to that it's able to figure out, such as your your devices that are connected, things like that, is that something where the person is giving permission or is that something that just, just happens? Yeah, so that, that just happens. That's something that, so I, I represent Brave on on the W3C, and I, I co-chair one of the privacy groups on the W3C, the horizontal review group that reviews specs for privacy. And that's something that we're working with, the working group that authors that spec, the media and, capture, media and streams capture group to improve that API. But that is just the way the API works in the standard right now. The website says, tell me about the devices the machine supports. It gets back a list of every device that the machine knows about that has like an AV component. Uh, and then the machine, then the website now says, okay, I would like to access this one. Uh, and then, then you get the permission dialog. But without mm. any permission, you, you can learn all the devices and all the labels and the categories and this sort of thing. I should say that the spec is, looks like it's getting much better. That working group has been really, uh, has been good to work with and has been, been really receptive to, to those concerns. But that is, that's the way it ships right now in, in Chrome, Edge. Brave makes some modifications to it. I don't know about the other ones, but that's the way the spe- standard is written. And that's a little interesting because you're, you're saying that the, the standard is currently being written, but a lot of these different browsers, they already have an implementation of it? Yeah, so this is another one of those like good intentions that have turned out to have un- unintended consequences kind of situations. So it used to be the case that if you're writing a web standard, a bunch of people would get together and work on the standard, and then when it was done, people were supposed to implement it. And then, this is a rough history, I'm sure I'm going to get some of the details wrong, but to a rough approximation, something like CSS2 happened, where you ended up with a standard that was basically unimplementable. Uh, and I had all these kind of subtleties that hadn't actually been worked out because nobody had implemented it yet. There's other cases too, and, and CSS2 might not have been like the tipping point, but it was definitely like a, a famous example. Then there was a CSS21 standard that came out when people started implementing it and it had to get revised in certain ways to, to make it actually work in the world. Hand-waving simplification, but people thought, this is not great, we, we need to like actually build these things as we're talking about them to make sure that they work in the world. And so then you got into this kind of like prefix situation where I don't know if you do, if you do if you're a web developer, you'll be familiar with like until pretty recently, like you had like all these like prefixed extensions where you're like rounded corners, but like WebKit rounded corners and Microsoft rounded corners and and Mozilla rounded corners. Yeah, and you had similar things in DOM, in the DOM, and there's still some hangover where like a bunch of specs in most browsers are are implemented twice, once WebKit prefix things like that. And so, understandably, people thought, this is not great. Now I have to write my code four different times. And so, right now, if you're trying to get a standard finished in the W3C, I'm less familiar with other standards organizations, but in the W3C, you need to have two working implementations, like two independent implementations. They don't necessarily need to be shipping, like, unflagged, like the way it's supposed to work in the best cases. Like, they're running in, in the browser, and there's some, you know, flag that you flip, or it's only enabled for some set of websites, but that's not always the case things are getting shipped as they're being designed in the standards body. It absolutely is like a little bit begging the question, right? In that if you, if you find out there's a problem during review that with the spec, well now a whole bunch of websites have already started depending on that certain functionality and have it baked in. That is a real pickle and something that we fight with like a lot during these reviews. But uh, yeah, that's the less than ideal situation that, that things have come to at this point. I think it's getting better, but that's generally how things are done right now. So yeah, that's kind of interesting because it sounds like you have the W3C and you're, you're planning on things that will go into the browser, but in order for them to become a standard, they need to already be in the browser. 
which also means, like you said, that people are already using them. I wonder what is sort of the negotiation or the back and forth in terms of, let's say Chrome is already using a certain feature and you say like, no, we'd like you to change this feature for for this reason. They'll say like, well, we already have thousands of sites that are using this. How are we going to change this, right? So what does that, that back and forth look like? Yeah, so the first thing to keep in mind is that like the standards body is not a legal organization, right? The standards body can't make anybody do anything. They can say something's not a standard, they can remove it, but people listen to a standards body if they want to listen to a standards body and they don't if they don't. So in that sense, like a standards body works by trying to make it mutually beneficial for people to go along with it and providing resources that maybe they, that an organization wouldn't have if they weren't in the standards body and some benefit in terms of interoperability, that sort of thing, to strengthen the platform in general. So that being said, uh, it's yeah, there's not an easy answer. So, so sometimes you can find like kind of clever games you can play with the way the existing APIs work that will reduce the amount of information exposed, but without like breaking the function signatures or the, the kind of expected flow of the program. There's several different tiers of review in the W3C, and some happen earlier than others. And, and what we've been trying to do is push review earlier in the process to try to catch these things while they're still like in prototype stage instead of web scale stage. But yeah, there's, there's nothing that, there's no way that the standards body can like go to Mr. and Mrs. Google and say, you must do a thing or, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Apple or, or whatever else. Unfortunately, sometimes fortunately, sometimes unfortunately, that's that's just the case. And you were saying how you're the, the co-chair of the, the privacy interest group on the W3C. How much power would you say that that, that group has? Do you have examples of times where somebody has tried to to push a feature through and you've rejected it on the basis of privacy and there's actually been changes made or the feature has been dropped altogether? I should say in terms of power, like we're a subset of the W3C and the W3C like at the end of the day has the organization has maybe some moral authority or some you know people respect it. And so there's some you know soft in quotation marks, power there, and there's some ex- there's a lot of expertise that people respect in the W3C, and there's a lot of mutual interest between the browser vendors to have a web that is friendly for developers and friendly for users. So there's no like authority, but there is uh, web browsers are interested sometimes in what the W3C has because of these other reasons. So power is 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 a funny word to use there, though I I, I take your point. To point out like very specific changes that have been made, I'll talk about the, the WebRTC one, the the enumerate devices. API because that's the one that's we just mentioned before. So right now, partially because of interest among people in the working group, partially because of, of reviews that Ping has done, Ping is the privacy interest group. There's both immediate changes that look like they're going to go into the API. None of this is 100%. This is all in the GitHub issues right now, but uh, this is the direction it looks like things are going to go in. Um, best guess. Uh, that there'll be a number of, of ways of like kind of shrinking the amount of information that websites can access by default. Um, so that's things like Without a permission, maybe you don't see this person has 18 different microphones. They just see there is at least one microphone, and then when the website asks for permission, then they can learn about the number, you know, the details, things like that. So that's a wonderful thing. I think the working group would agree that's not like the dream outcome, but it's dramatically better than what was there earlier. Um, and then we're also working with the working group. They, you know, they're doing the great work in terms of figuring out like a where can we go to that's even better. And so that looks like it'll be like the website doesn't see anything by default. If the website wants to see devices, they call a thing. The browser prompts you with a list of devices, and then if you want to, that information gets passed. That's an example that comes to my mind. I mean, there's a long list. If it's of interest to your uh, listeners too, I could also point you to like 
the endless list of, of privacy issues that we raise and, and the back and forth that happens on them there. But um, sometimes they're very large things like that. Sometimes they're very small things like you're leaking fingerprinting bits here and, and let's figure out a way to, to sort through that. One of the things I find interesting about your position is you work for Brave, which is a, a browser vendor, and you have Microsoft with Edge, you've got Google with Chrome, Apple with Safari, and Mozilla with Firefox. And I would imagine that all of these different companies, they all have their own goals, they all have their own things that they want. And I wonder from your perspective, what are the kinds of roles that each of these companies play and and where do they kind of butt heads and and where are they kind of on the same page? I want to say things that I'm only, you know, very confident about. Uh, uh, All these organizations and particularly the people that are sitting in these like committees and these working groups that represent these organizations have an interest in the web. They see there's something, you know, unique about the web that that is appealing and, and, and desirable and positive that's not on other platforms. They may not 100% agree on what those positive things are, but there's something that appeals to, to us about the web that doesn't, doesn't exist on other platforms. And so there's, there's mutual interest there. I also think that like all these people care about privacy. They care about making sure things are accessible to people with different needs on the web. They care about making sure APIs you know, work well for people who speak different languages and have come from different backgrounds and these sorts of things. Like, at the end of the day, people who like choose to spend their time in these long meetings working with each other, like, you know, we have very similar interests and we're all pushing the same way. Where they differ is that prioritization of those interests. Like Brave is absolutely like, we think there's something super duper wrong, like kind of fundamentally wrong. Yeah, maybe that's too strong. But like the web has really gone sideways and the privacy violations are uh, endemic and really horrible and like intolerable. I think other people would say, yes, privacy violations are bad, but it's also like we also want to make sure that we like don't break the ecosystem that exists to fund the web as it exists today. And so that's like privacy is just one among many different interests, including making sure like advertising dollars still fund websites and things like that. And then I think there's other people who who, who existed in other parts of that on that spectrum and have different interests. So so I think we're all kind of pushing the web in, in the same direction and are all, all are interested in making sure it flourishes. But what flourishing means probably differs between different people in different organizations. Something that that sometimes comes up and it maybe is a little more front of mind because uh, Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference happened recently is that people have a perception of Safari not implementing a lot of features that other browser vendors either implement or want to implement. And I think a lot of times they say that they're doing it in in the name of privacy. And on the other hand, you have developers who are saying, oh, we want all of these different features because we want to be able to build uh, progressive web applications. We want to be able to build uh, websites that are similar to apps. And I, I wonder, like, from your perspective, uh, how do you how do you balance these these two goals? So I, th- I think that's like a, a really interesting example that you brought up for a couple of reasons. One is I, I remember that uh, I bet we're thinking about the same tweet that kind of went around and, and the same kind of people blowing off steam. And I can totally understand their frustrations. But I should say two things first before going into the, the guts of your question. One is that most of those things are not standards; they're proposals. And so as much as the web community may like to treat them as standards because they're implemented in a popular browser, they are not standards. Nobody has agreed to them. Blah, 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 blah. They are proposals. The second thing is that um, I think there was like 16 or 17 or 18 different things on that list. I don't remember the full the full thing, but I remember looking through it and thinking like, Brave takes the additional step of removing these things from Chromium before we ship Brave. Like I am 
completely sympathetic to the idea and the vast majority of those cases, maybe all those cases, I just I just don't remember the full list, that those are really privacy risking features. And it's it's the permissions models around them are not well defined. They haven't been well reviewed. And like the risk is really significant. Like like Apple's got you know more money than than anybody knows what to do with. If Apple Apple's not not implementing because they're they're lazy, it's like they may be pursuing a different strategy. But I but I also know that the people in those committees like have sincere, strong, heartfelt interest in, in privacy. So I I understand the frustration in the web community, but I I, I find the privacy story there compelling. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also maybe important to to think about the fact that as soon as you put those into the browsers, it's going to be extremely difficult to remove them, right? Yeah, I mean the web has this like you know it congeals around any features that that, that gets there, and the moment you put something in, it becomes extremely difficult to pull it out. Yeah, it's something that we deal with at Brave a lot because we think that the way a lot of APIs work are, is, you know, inappropriate and intolerable, and we have to be very clever in, in the kinds of ways we can kind of modify behavior that websites already ex- expect to exist in a certain way. I think I know about the tweet you're referring to, and I don't remember all the specific features, but I wonder from your perspective, are these features that you think shouldn't exist, or is it more that? The way that people want to implement them now wouldn't be done in a, a privacy-conscious way. Hmm, that, uh, that's a good question. Uh, so I, I also don't remember the full list, um, but I can pull off some examples. Uh, I think there's like kind of three tiers. Some things just seem like bad ideas that we should just not do, or at least not do without like pretty fundamentally rethinking how they exist. Some of these things are things because they make more sense as like operating system features or like native app features, and they do websites. And some of these things are things like, yeah, maybe those would actually be very useful on the web if we could we could figure out how to do them responsibly. A lot of this stuff has its has its roots in not in things that like typical websites need to do, but like the, the union of a bunch of weird things that kind of happened. One is like Firefox OS happened for a while, and so a bunch of things got pushed into the web platform that some of which got yanked out later. Chrome OS is another one, PWAs, things like this. Um, and a lot of these things are really different from what we think about as websites, it, it's worth thinking about like where are those lines and, and should they be firm or, or, or that sort of thing. A while ago, the example that sticks out of my head is there was a, a standard that got shipped in Gecko and in, in Firefox and in, in Chrome that allowed websites to read like the amount of ambient light in the room. The, the website could read, you know, is it very bright, is it very low? I don't remember the, the granularity, but you know, any step in between. And of course, like the very first place this stuff got used is in tracking scripts to fingerprint people. Same with the battery API. There was an API that allowed websites to say full battery, low battery, that sort of thing. You can imagine why like that would be a nice feature in an app. But you can also imagine it gets sucked into the fingerprinting scripts immediately and starts harming and targeting people. And so, yeah, I, there, there's there's definitely a part of the web that says let's just permission prompt everything or uh, use a number of different kind of proposals that I that concern me to like kind of restrict this stuff or, or allow it on the web in a responsible way. But I like the web as it is without adding more functionality has so many like deep privacy issues. It makes you, I feel very nervous about pushing for new functionality unless like privacy is really treated as a, as a first class citizen in, in those standards. Yeah. And, and it sounds like where we're at now, there's already so many different ways that you can be fingerprinted. And every time a new feature is added to the browser, it just gets more and more easy, I guess, to, to track someone. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and there's also cases where adding a new feature like undoes a privacy protection somebody else has added in somewhere else. 
it's good to be very cautious before throwing new powerful features into the platform. Another thing that you had mentioned when uh, we first talked about doing this interview was you had said that Brave is based on Chromium, and you you said that you had a somewhat semi-adversarial relationship with upstream Chromium. Uh, I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Sure, that that was kind of a silly and, and a goofball thing to, way to put it. I don't think I, I am that's that misstates things too strongly. So the Chromium developers have been very receptive to like questions that we have, and when we've tried to upstream stuff. We found it to be a positive experience, but there are things where like the the vast majority of Chromium developers are, are Google employees, and so of course Chromium is shipped in a lot of ways with. with Chrome in mind. Uh, I don't think it's a malicious thing, but it, but it is the case. And so there's a whole lot of stuff in the Chromium code base that assumes Google, which servers get talked to and account information stuff and safe browsing things and an incredibly long list of stuff that like is just in the Chromium code base but assumes Google, including and this is maybe what I this is what I had in mind when I said adversarial poor choice of words. There's a couple of features that Chrome ships that allow you to basically enable a feature on only on certain origins, and they call like field trials, this kind of thing. So if 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 the Chromium folks want to test out a new feature, they can say only these three or four or five or whatever partner websites can use it. Sometimes that feature gets shipped, they'll ship a feature ungated, like not flagged, and then they'll use this feature to turn it off. So they'll ship some new experimental feature, and then they'll say, but we're not going to allow it on any sites, like the field trial set is zero or is empty. And so that's their way of making sure that sites don't get it. Well, if you're building a browser that like you know wants to put firm lines between itself and Google data collection servers, um, you don't get that information. And so now all of a sudden, like the weirdo experimental feature is enabled globally in Chrome or in your, your version of Chromium, a long list of things like that. There are also other choices in the platform that make certain things that we would like to do difficult. I, I could go on those examples if it's, if it's of interest. I don't think that's adversarial. Well, that was a, a silly choice of words. Uh, but it, it does mean that there's different, different interests being pursued in the code base that are you know, not always brave. It's not always as privacy focused as, as Brave would like. I, I'm not sure if if you would have an answer to this, but uh, when Brave was kind of deciding what what rendering engine to use, whether that's Chromium's Blink or WebKit or something else, why, why did they make the decision to use Chromium as a base? So this this predates me at the company, so I can only. Um, I can only think through some of these things. Yeah, I, I don't want to say something I'm not sure about. The, the early Brave folks considered a bunch of different engines, and like Brave started as an Electron app. So basically, when there was you know an extremely small number of developers at the company, it was in its its extremely early days. It was just a thing that was done on top of you know stock Chromium. It allowed the company to iterate really quickly and try a bunch of new things and and do some of the kinds of things that it knew it wanted to do that were easier to do at that level than trying to maintain a large patch set and this kind of stuff against Chromium. And there's probably some path dependency on that. We're no longer an Electron app, right? We're like a proper Chromium uh, project. That's part of it. I I don't know the particulars of why um, Electron was selected and not not a Gecko option or not a WebKit option. I couldn't say exactly what tip the scale one versus the other. Something you mentioned was that private mode or incognito might be something interesting to talk about. So could you elaborate on what you were thinking there? Like the battle of what like private browsing mode is and incognito mode is and, and like what that is supposed to do is I think nobody has a single story for what it actually is supposed to be. In some browsers, it basically means like your storage doesn't persist after you close the browser. And that's all it means. Like it, the browser operates 
exactly the same way. Local storage operates the same way, et cetera, et cetera, except you have a separate cookie jar and a separate set of state that goes away when, when you close all your private browsing windows. That was for a long time, like kind of like the textbook definition or like the whatever it agreed on. And then, but you can see over time, like in standards bodies and in, in just in implementations, I think there's been some recognition that users have a different understanding, or at least some users have a different expectation of what private means, and it can connotate something beyond just the state goes away. And so there's been kind of like a slow drip of new features, new privacy features into private browsing windows in major browsers. So Firefox, by default, if you put a, if you enable um, a private browsing window and you're in strict versus default mode for for intelligent tracking protection, it does slightly different things. Chrome changes the the operation of some some APIs that allow you to query like your quota on storage to prevent like sites from detecting whether you're in private browsing mode, et cetera, et cetera, things like this. But the, I think it's interesting because it, it seems like it's like a, a recognition that users want more privacy in a, in a machine and are kind of desperate for whatever buttons are in front of them, even if what guarantees are, are being made by those those buttons aren't totally clear. Yeah, that's a good point because when I think of private mode or incognito mode, I, I think of your first example where it just means that it's going to clear whatever was stored on the computer, like cookies or your history, things like that. And what you're saying is like now the opinions have shifted to where like maybe private mode should be blocking trackers or maybe it should be, I think the example you gave was... Um, preventing sites from finding out certain things about your computer or your browser. Yeah, that's a perspective that I, I didn't realize what people thought, but that, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe this is a positive thing. It's become a little bit, eh, I'm not sure that's true. My impression, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to war over it, is, uh, is that it's a little bit of testing ground for people to say, like, we know less people use private browsing mode than we use like the typical mode, so we can be slightly more experimental and in, in the kinds of features we test out in, in private browsing mode for privacy-related features. If that's the case, then it means more more stuff gets turned on by default over the medium term. I think it's probably a good thing for the web. One of the things that you had sort of t- touched on earlier was when you're trying to preserve privacy, when you have features that are, are blocking certain things that could be used to track you or block certain features in the browser, uh, one of the side effects of that is that it can break websites. And what are some some common examples of where that can happen? And, and how are uh, you know you at Brave, but browser vendors in general, trying to to work around that? Sure. Um, so, like the most common or goofball way that can happen is, say you're using some ad blockers. You're you're pulling in some filter list, and it says you should delete everything that says ad in the URL or whatever, right? Slash ad slash something like that. Some website, for whatever reason, has something that's not an ad in the URL or, or something like that. Right now you're blocking something you don't intend, and that might be a script like the page depends on for like its, its, its execution. And given that like the size of these filter lists, given that you're, you, you could easily be considering hundreds of thousands, maybe even 200,000 rules if you're using a tool like Brave or uBlock Origin or, or something like that, the, the possibility for false positives is, is very high. So that's, that's like the, the simplest cases can happen. But then it gets more complicated. So Brave by default blocks third-party storage by default. There's a very extremely small number of exceptions that we make to unbreak websites, but by default we just block all third-party storage. So if you're in an iframe, you don't get to store stuff. You don't get cookies if you're, getting, if you're a third-party request, stuff like that. And the vast, vast, vast majority of cases that works just fine, like 
people don't usually care about the stuff that's going on in iframes on a page, and, and when they do, they doesn't usually need to touch storage, but you can imagine some places that will that'll break. Someone embeds a video and that video wants to, you know, store its state or something like that. That requires some cleverness in dealing with it. And then uh, just a third example, this happened a bunch when like the co when COVID started becoming a, a, a popular concern is that people wanted to look at maps and see where like COVID was spreading. And so these sites would usually use things like uh, either rendering these maps via SVG or via Canvas operations. And Brave by default did, no, no longer, but at the time was blocking certain Canvas operations and SVG operations because we knew they were being used by fingerprinters. In all three of those cases, you have privacy protections that end up breaking things that, at least in these cases, are not privacy protecting or pri uh, privacy harming. Probably even more so than my job doing like privacy stuff at Brave is, is figuring out how to do that privacy stuff in, in a web-compatible way or how to break less websites so people can use Brave without having to drop shields and drop those protections. And so each of those different things kind of warrants a different response. So one has been to to adopt a strategy that the uBlock Origin project takes. The uBlock Origin project is is, is fantastic, and, and all credit to those folks. They're, they're that yeah, that project is is really fantastic work. Instead of just yes, like yes, I allow the resource, or no, I block it. They'll also sometimes say replace it with some different thing that like maintains the API signatures, but it actually nulls out the like the tracking behavior. And so that's been a, a really useful uh, approach for for unbreaking websites if we can figure out what they expect, like the functions they expect to be in place, but but replace them with with less um, painful stuff. And I can talk about a research project if it's of interest over the summer, actually with the student, Michael Smith, the student who's visiting from UCSD to, to leverage this, if, if that's of interest afterwards. Are you replacing something in the JavaScript code that's running, or are you replacing something that some browser API that is trying to get access to? Ah, sometimes, sometimes both. So uh, in the simplest cases, like Google Analytics provides some functions or like triggers some events on load. And if you block Google Analytics, it means some things will never load. And so instead of blocking Google Analytics, you just you see, here's a request for Google Analytics. Instead, I'm going to return this thing that you know does nothing but trigger a load event, but actually doesn't touch network or, or anything like that. And so you're replacing the resource instead of mm -hmm. requesting it. But you might also do things like I see that like this some code that does something nasty or is or is inline, so I don't get a chance to 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 modify the request. I see it's inline, and so I want to somehow modify its behavior. And so I'm gonna, I mean, sometimes this stuff gets really gross, but I'm gonna say overwrite some some structure that the, the page expects to be there. I'm gonna throw a stack trace. I'm gonna look up and see if I'm in the inline code. If I am, I'm gonna take path A, and otherwise I'm gonna take path B. All these kinds of gross things. Uh, the web is a messy place, and, and there's a whole bunch of kind of tricks like that that have to get pulled. So we pull a bunch of that stuff from the Black Origin project. We generate some of it on our own. For fingerprinting stuff, and this is something that we're, some place that um, we've been able to, to pull from research that I've, I'm, I'm really proud of us shipping, or I'm, I'm really glad about, is in the same sort of way that the Black Origin said, it shouldn't just be yes or no. We should have some middle road that allows us to be more clever. We've taken the same approach of fingerprinting protection. So instead of just saying, yes, it's allowed, or no, the API goes away, we, we now do something we call farbling, where we break the assumption that websites have that that the features are going to operate in a fixed way across browsers by adding a little bit of noise to, to the API response. So um, if you're doing some canvas operations, we'll, with very low probability, modify a pixel here or there or, or flip a bit in like the flip the lowest bit in a color channel for a pixel, that kind of thing. So instead of just saying like blocking the API to protect people, we can instead have this like more web-compatible way where we still allow the API to work, but we we remove its identifiability by having it always do something different between sites, between sessions. 
something that we're working on right now, and and we actually uh, are working with a student from North Carolina who's prototyping this for us over the summer. This is, this is a, another research intern named uh, Jordan, Jordan Jordanstock, who's doing great stuff. We're looking into a, a, a third option for local sto- for remote storage. So instead of a frame, either yes, getting storage, or no, not getting storage, we want this middle option where we can say the frame gets what looks like normal storage for the execution of the page, but by the time the top page, fr- like the top frame is closed, then that storage goes away. A lot of this stuff is just figuring out ways, like the web compatibility game is, is figuring out a bunch of ways of like breaking the binary choice, choice and, and, and figuring out ways of like sneaking more cleverness in, into the platform. So when you're referring to a, a frame and the local storage going away, could you kind of elaborate what you mean by that? Oh, sure. So um, on a website, like a, a typical website, you have you have one frame, which is just like, you know, there's a document object and there's a bunch of like DOM structure that hangs off of that. But one of those things that's hanging off of it might be an iframe, which is mm-hmm. itself like its own contained document structure. And that can be, you know, infinitely recursed or infin- inf- can happen infinitely deep. And so... This is usually referred to as like the first party and the third party or the first, like the local frame and the remote frame. There's some overloading of terms because in some browsers, like remote frames are also remote processes, like in the way that an operating system understands processes. But typically a local frame is, this, is a frame that has the same ETLD plus one, which means effective top level domain plus one, which is like the, the level of domain that you can register if you go to, you know, hover or whatever. And so all the frames that have the same ETLD plus one as the top frame are local frames. Anything else is a remote frame or a third party frame. And so browsers will use this as like a, some browsers will use this as a, a heuristic for saying local frames the user trusts, and so I'm going to allow it to store cookies and local storage and this kind of thing. Remote frames deserve less trust, and so I'm going to block storage, or I'm going to partition storage, or I'm going to do something possibly clever with storage. Not all browsers do that, but it's uh, increasingly common. I see, and I think you were uh, explaining how you could have a let's say, an embedded iframe, and it could use browser local storage, but maybe as soon as you click to another page, then that local storage goes away. Is that kind of what you were? Yeah, so that's the approach Brave is taking. This has been like, this is interesting. So there's another privacy group in the W3C called the Privacy Community Group, which is kind of like the the sibling group to the group I co-chair. So I co-chair the review group that reads everybody else's specs and and, and tries to improve the privacy of what other organizations or what other working groups are working on. Privacy CG is where browser vendors go to introduce new features. And so Brave is involved in both, and a lot of, there's a lot of overlap between the two. Earlier you were talking about how people could be fingerprinted, they could be identified by seeing how things render, whether mm-hmm. that's on a canvas or SVG. And uh, what you were saying, the way that you were dealing with it, which I found was kind of interesting, is it sounded like you were adding additional information. So your your video card might render something a certain way, but then you would add, I guess, additional things that would make it render differently than the video card normally would. And, and that's how uh, you would sort of uh, remove that as an identifying factor. I, I wonder also, you were also mentioning about how you had a, a research project at, at UCSD and I uh, didn't quite catch what, what exactly that was. Um, yeah, so so in that order, the first one, uh, the, the adding information parts. This this approach came out of two research papers a while back. One is a paper called Privacator, led by my boss, my current boss, Ben Livshitz, who's a, a, a professor at Imperial in, in London. Um, and the second paper was a paper called FP Random, fingerprint random, 
both of those things kind of uh, introduced this technique or kind of played with it. Um, Brave is the first one who's kind of productized it or, or included it in a popular shipping browser. But yeah, the, the approach is to break the assumption that there's something unique about this browser that I can identify across sites. And so we randomize some of these features or we add extremely subtle amount of noise that'll confuse fingerprinters, but but look indistinguishable to users. We do it in a way that's random, but deterministic under each first party, under each session. So you close the browser, you get a new fingerprint, and if you go to a new site, you get a fingerprint. And so that, that prevents things from being linked. So it's been a nice, a nice way of taking academic research and figuring out a way to, to use it for a shipping privacy protection. Cool. So that was something that in your role at Brave, and or I guess Brave as a company, decided that this was something to look into from a research perspective. And then because the research went well, you're able to, to move that over to the product side. Oh, well, I wish it was the case. I mean, so these are papers that pre-existed at Brave. Oh, okay, okay. Um, it was a pro- situation where we knew we had a problem. Websites were breaking because of our fingerprinting protections. We didn't want to make like leave people less protected. And so research was one place we could pull, we could start digging for a solution. And likewise, so, so you asked about the, the project at UCSD this summer. There's a student who's visiting named Michael Smith. He's a fantastic student and, and a fantastic hacker. And so his project is, I mentioned before about this, the way UBO, UBlock Origin, does these resource replacements. And so as you might imagine, like these things are very difficult to generate. They take a lot of uh, like stepping through the debugger and, and manually figuring out how these large JavaScript blobs operate and particularly what like what subset of the functionality you need to maintain to unbreak the pages? Extremely tedious and doesn't scale, doesn't scale well. And so the approach that Michael and I are working on, Michael's doing the hard work, is to see if we can automatically generate these things through a combination of browser instrumentation, a system we call PageGraph, which allows you to deterministically offline see the interaction of different elements of a page. AST analysis, AST is the abstract syntax tree, or it's it's a parsing step in in executing JavaScript or parsing any language, um, and then code rewriting to, to identify the parts that are privacy harming, rewrite just those parts, and then we can programmatically generate these, these privacy-preserving resource replacements in a way that can be automated instead of needing requiring the, the, the kind of heroic amount of, of manual intervention they, they currently do. So if I understand correctly, currently when you use something like uBlock Origin and you go to a website, and let's say that that website loads a script that has privacy implications, has some issues with tracking, but the behavior is still needed for that website to work, uBlock Origin will actually replace parts of the JavaScript source code so that the the site still works, but it it blocks whatever kind of tracking behavior that it was going to have. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it, it's not that it like goes like fetches the resource and then does some like rewriting on the fly. It just like preloads like this is the privacy preserving version of Google the Google Analytics script. I this see. kind of thing. Brave mm-hmm. does the same thing, by the way. We had a someone who worked was an in, uh, intern last summer, Anton, who's now a, a full time employee at, at Brave and, and is is phenomenal. Um, but yeah, Brave does the exact same thing uh, out of the box. So we preload all the same resource replacements and are generating our own and and, and do this in the same way. And then in the the research project that you're currently working on, the the goal is for the browser to be able to to load these third party scripts and sort of on the fly figure out if there's something that should be blocked or changed in the script. Is did I get that right? That's mostly it. So it's, it's slightly different than that. And the, and the reason it's different is that so JavaScript because it's so dynamic, it's this. It's difficult to statically analyze. Like you have to execute it and and see what it actually does in a lot of cases to to, to deal with 
all sorts of corner cases or all sorts of aspects of the language because things can get aliased and, and functions get bound and there's dynamic code execution through evals and stuff like that. And so the difficulty there is like, you hand me some JavaScript, I can't reason about it in a fundamental way about saying, these are the seven places where it's going to do, you know, write a cookie or, or do a network request or touch local storage or whatever. So that's, that's one problem there. And the way we solve that is we have this heavily modified version of Brave that we call PageGraph, or that includes a feature we call PageGraph that allows us to, among other things, say, okay, these are the 18 parts of like the JavaScript code that are actually end up like touching local storage or you know doing a network request or whatever else. And so we use that for fine like de-aliasing the values in JavaScript. Then offline we can once we have those we can re, we can programmatically rewrite the code at, uh, by analyzing where those places are and replacing those lines of code or those uh, those chunks of the file with privacy preserving alternatives and then. At that point, we have our resource replacement automatically. So the process is offline in that we crawl the web and we, we ge we'll generate a whole bunch of these things beforehand, and then we can preload them in Brave's browser in, in the Brave browser or share them with the Black Origin project or, or anybody else. But the appealing thing is if we do all this you know, work over the summer and, and, and this research project is successful, which which I think it will be, we have a way of automatically doing this stuff that before would take you know an extreme like a pretty awesome amount of, of manual labor to do. So it sounds like you have this special version of the Brave browser and you could perhaps automate it to to visit a bunch of websites, pull all the scripts and see what it does to the page and then basically give you a, a list of, hey, these are all the, the scripts that we think have issues and we saw what it did and this is the parts we need to remove or change and then you can ship that to users either in uBlock Origin or in the Brave browser itself. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And so most of that stuff already exists through fantastic tools that people like Google have made. Puppeteer is, is a is a really fantastic system that, that Google has made that allows you to automate browser browsers and interact with sites and understand what browsers are doing. But it's, I mean, it's phenomenal. But but it also has a, it doesn't answer all your questions. It's very difficult to using Puppeteer or using any system to understand that this script modified this file and that file then. Requested this image and that image, whatever you know, these these complicated chains of interaction. That's extremely difficult to understand online in Puppeteer, or in particularly after the fact, just looking at the end result of the page. And so, PageGraph is the system that allows us to, with extremely high fidelity, trace every single one of these operations in, in the page and then stitch them together in a graph in, in the sense of like edges and nodes, not as a you know a, a PDF. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I know one of your other papers or presentations you had talked about uh, EasyList, which is the sort of the the list of trackers and ads that uBlock Origin and a lot of other systems use to decide what to block. And that sounds like a very time intensive process if you have all these different people that are visiting sites themselves and figuring out like, oh, these these, these are the things that should be blocked, right? Whereas um, with your research now, it would be more like we could have just the computer kind of go and browse the internet for us, figure out um, what needs to be blocked, and save a lot of sort of time in the future in terms of figuring out um, what we need to block. Yeah, I think that's true. Although two complications there. And first, I want to say that so EasyList is a fantastic project, and there's a kind of a bunch of, of related child projects. So there's EasyList, there's Easy Privacy, there's a bunch of regional, region specific EasyLists, this sort of thing, and one of the core maintainers of EasyList, uh, uh, 
who goes by the online handle Fanboy, is part of our team at Brave. He's he's fantastic. Uh, he's a full-time Brave employee, and he, he his job at Brave is to maintain filter lists both for Brave but also to benefit the, the larger community. And so things like Easy List are, on one hand, phenomenal. Like the, the like, I think people just completely un, like underappreciate how much there's like four core maintainers of Easy List, and without like these four people like doing the things they do, like the web would be an infinitely more miserable place. And like the fact that like the the web hangs on like the evening, like the after hours jobs that these people have until at least till recently when they started being supported commercially is totally underappreciated and fantastic. Those lists are also like deeply imperfect. They're full of heuristics, like the ad example, like, you know, slash ad slash example. There's, there's lots of heuristics. There's lots of stuff that gets broken. Um, and there's lots of, uh, in quotation marks, dead weight or, or rules that were useful five years ago. But now it's very difficult to know if they're still useful given the size of the web. And so it tends to just amass rules over time. None of that is a, is a criticism of, the, of the, the maintainers who are fantastic or the, the community around them that contribute lists, but just, just the nature of the beast. Like Brave's approach and, and some other researchers' approach has been to can we use like these labels that these people have generated as like high confidence things to start reasoning about the rest of the web? So it wouldn't be a replacement to Easy List. You still need some human in the in the cycle somewhere to to make some of these assessments. But can we like force multiply what that person is able to do through automation or machinery or machine learning or you know different types of of, of tooling? Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and I I thought it was really surprising how how few people were were maintaining such a gigantic list. Like I think um, you had said there were something like three hundred thousand entries, or I don't remember how many entries were on Easy List, but it just I think it's around very... seventy five, or I haven't looked recently. I know that Ryan's okay. been doing some cleanup, but but close to a hundred thousand in just Easy List. I think it's seventy mm-hmm. something, and then there's Easy Privacy, and there's you know a long number of other lists too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't tell you the, the concatenated size, but large, yeah. very, very large. <laughs> so you've kind of been centered on the the privacy side and the tracking side. And I wonder in your work if you had any visibility on the people who who kind of want all these things to happen, like the advertisers that want to be able to do the tracking. Has this sort of tracking actually been really effective for them and like and on the flip side I wonder you know how much of these ads are even being seen by real people like could there be ad fraud going on in terms of computers are just looking at these ads and we're not the ones looking at these ads yeah so so like like you pointed out this we're now stepping something out you know out of my area of it and quadruple ironic quotation marks expertise but um but I can I can at least share what I know or my, my impression from working doing what I do. One is that, yeah, absolutely fraud is completely endemic to the degree that people have no idea how much it is, but numbers that I've seen for online ad fraud are anywhere from like 10 to 50%. I, I, these are not numbers you should nail me down to, but but something to understand the magnitude of the problem, like enormous. And, and the number of like middle players there are in these markets make it extremely difficult for anybody to for any one party to understand what's going on. Like, uh, th- there's a phrase that gets thrown around called the loom escape. And, and after this call, I, I try to find you an image, but it's it's this kind of like 18 step deep, like flow chart of how advertising markets worked. And that was five or six or seven years ago when that, that image was made. But yeah, these they're, they're extremely dense and in the vast majority of players in the markets, you wouldn't recognize their name. You know, nobody would recognize their name unless you were you know an employee of that company. So yeah, ad fraud is an enormous problem. 
And it doesn't seem like there's a way to, it's going to get better anytime soon. Like the system seems like it's definitely on, on its way out and kind of getting worse. One thing that's really neat about Brave is that a number of the people who work at Brave have like histories in, in ad tech markets playfully have said like they're repenting for, what you know, their work at Brave is their apology for what they did they did earlier. And and one person who works BizDev, uh, Luke is is like just a, a phenomenal dude and incredible at what he does, but he used to work in doing this kind of stuff um, in terms of like helping to build tracking systems and understanding how that works. And now, yeah, Luke, Luke is fantastic. Johnny Ryan is, is somebody who does policy work at Brave too. He used to work at PageFair. He talks a lot to enforcers, like people on the political side who do like uh, CPAA and GDPR kind of things to make sure that regulators are actually enforcing these things. And his sense is that just the amount of fraud and the amount of tracking is 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 just unimaginable, and so and so yeah, the problem is is well established. In terms of whether it's actually profitable, or I'm sure that's like very deeply debated. So I know that Google has some numbers that have said that if you remove like the behavioral component from tracking and you do just contextual tracking, so or track contextual ads, so ads that know like where they appear but not who they're who's looking at them, their numbers suggest that like that profits drop by like. 50%, something along those lines. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something on that magnitude. I know some people are extremely skeptical of, of those numbers, and, and of course, has Google is not an unbiased actor, but, but those are the numbers that they've, they've shared. Um, and I know there's numbers on the other hand that, uh, that get pointed to that says the amount gained by marketers and, and um, people who are placing ads is negligible to negative uh, when you remove the behavioral component because there's so much fraud in the market that they end up, like behavioral tracking actually ends up having a negative return. So so all that is to say is I I, I deeply don't know. I know that the, the system relies on things that seem abhorrent to me, but uh, but there's a, a diversity of opinions on, on whether it's, it's, uh, it's actually useful or it's useful for what it claims to do. From site to site, the sort of effectiveness in terms of the ads you see, how relevant they are, it can vary really wildly, right? And and we're never really sure why certain ads are being shown to us, right? You know, the example that a lot of people will give is on Amazon, right? Where you you buy something and then all of the suggested items are like for the thing you bought and people kind of joke like, oh, you know, this this targeting isn't very good, right? But on the other hand, you have uh, platforms like Instagram, where I've heard that the the advertisements on there, they're actually very effective. Like they they tend to show people things that they actually might be interested in buying, and they actually go through and click. But it, it's interesting because, like I was saying, I, I don't know, like why some some things seem effective and why some things don't. Right? It could be that they have tons of tracking information and they still do a bad job of of what they they show to you. I have the same uncertainty about this stuff. I imagine that, I mean, I shouldn't hazard a guess. I honestly don't know like the the, the usefulness of these things. I'm, I'm really dubious or I'm really uncertain about it. I doubt it, but I couldn't say confidently that it's definitely not the case. And I've heard the same kind of success stories and the same kind of, you know, catastrophe stories too. Two things here. One is that there's, this might be of interest, there's this kind of famous story of not how the successfulness of tracking, but like kind of like the, the harm of it, there, there's a, I can send you a link to the story if it's of interest, but there's a, a famous case of a family getting advertisements from Target. These are paper advertisements from Target. So the family starts getting advertisements sent to them for uh, prenatal kind of stuff or, or like baby cribs, this kind of thing. And uh, the father does understand why this is happening. The parents don't understand why this is happening. It turns out that the daughter is pregnant um, and has been looking up information about how to take care for 
for for the expected child, uh, and the advertisers knew it before the rest of the family knew it. Anyway, so so I mean, I guess that's a story where maybe it was effective, but also morally reprehensible. And, and then the other thing I wanted to say is like, so this is maybe a chance to describe how Brave does this differently than everybody else does, and, and why I think one thing that th- I think is neat about Brave is that Brave does two things differently. One is that there is no tra- like no information about you you're browsing ever leaves the device. And so this is two, two benefits. One is that your device is going to have a lot more information about you than any third party is because it sees every website you visit. So it can do a better job of you know understanding what might, might actually be useful to you. And second is that uh, Brave flips the incentive structure. So right now here on the web, the vast majority of ads are not going to be of interest to you. And all the ads come with this like all these horrible side effects of, of hurting your performance, violating your privacy, like carrying the risk of malware, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so nobody wants to look at ads or like, or that's why ad blockers are popular, right? And so Brave's approach is different. Like Brave will pay you to look at ads. Like Brave incentivizes you to look at ads. That gives you a reason to look at ads. It gives marketers a reason to like prioritize your, your attention. It breaks the, the privacy and, and performance harm and, and security risk. And, and arguably can provide much better ads than, than some tracking-based third party does. So I think there's something something clever about what, what Brendan and, and Brian Bondi came up with in terms of the, the the way that Brave goes about these things compared to how other marketers have. We've been talking about how advertisers are using tracking to to hopefully show you something that you know they think you'll be interested in, right? A lot of the research you're doing is to to try and prevent a lot of that tracking. So if you do that and you show someone banner ads. How how are you going to be able to ensure that those those ads are, are relevant to the person when you can't track them? Uh, two things. One is that Brave will never Brave never puts an ad in the page. Like whenever you see an ad through Brave, it's it's very clearly not related to the page. It's in a notification to make sure that we are not putting ads against publishers who don't want them, and for a whole bunch of other reasons to, to prevent that kind of like like brand confusion and, and all the other kind of nasty side effects about it. So Brave doesn't track you in the sense that like your information never leaves your device. Brave. If we wanted to, we couldn't learn anything about our users in any capacity. Like that, no bits hit our servers that describe your browsing behavior. But like that, you're on the device. The, the device is constantly learning and saying, "Oh, it looks like you're looking at shoes. Looks like, like you're looking at cryptocurrency. Looks like you're looking at you know airline flights or whatever it may be." And so the device has a, a great deal of information that might be able to say, "Maybe you would like to see an ad about shoes, or maybe you would like to see a, uh, an ad about you know vacations or, or whatever it may be." And so. It's not tracking in the sense that like nobody is looking at you. It's it's your own device seeing what your device already sees, but it does have the kinds of information that seems like it might be able to actually show you stuff you might want to see. And the other thing is uh, you mentioned users understanding why they're getting the ads they're getting and to be able to control it. I mean, I think this is like a totally underappreciated concern in almost all of machine learning, where you have these like extremely complex. Deeply nested structures that are com- arrive at decisions that are completely opaque, even to like machine learning experts, let alone to you know, like typical internet users. And like your life is, be- or in many ways, like people's lives are being guided by these these unauditable like black boxes. And so, like Brave's commitment is like, like we are committed to like allowing people to understand, to like see the model, to edit the model, to partition the model, to add into or remove certain interests. We're not at a threshold yet where it makes sense to do that, but like it is a commitment that Brave has made. It is absolutely in the plans. And like, yeah, I mean, black boxes like that terrify me and Brave is not going to become one of them. 
And you had mentioned how Brave, the the browser, is not going to add ads to a site that doesn't have them. Does does that mean that for sites that will have ads, that they would have some kind of relationship with Brave, where they say that we want to show ads in Brave, and and that's what has to happen in order for advertising to show? Right now, there's there's a couple different types of ads that Brave sends. The main one is this notification ads. So by default, you see zero ads. You don't see anything. But if you say, like, yes, I want to start getting paid to look at ads, you can say, show me, you know, between one and five ads an hour, and every, you know, one to five times an hour, you'll get a notification that looks like the same notification you get if you received an email or whatever. And it'll say, maybe you're interested in shoes or, you know, whatever it might say. That's the predominant way that you see ads in Brave products. You also sometimes see advertising and get get compensated for ads. Like if you open up the new tab page and and you and you haven't disabled it, like you'll see, you may see an ad there, and that you similarly get compensated for that. I should say that for Brave ads, the user get the user gets seventy percent, Brave gets thirty percent. So it's like the inverse of the Apple App Store, right? And then the, the, there's a third tier of, of ad that Brave is considered, but does not ship and has is is working through the details on it, if we do ship it called publisher ads, and that's when a website could affirmatively say, yes, Brave, please. Please add ads in these locations on my website. Those we don't do that now. If we ever did do it, it would be only with like the affirmative consent of of the website. Um, but there's a bunch of difficulties there that have kept us from shipping it. Mostly, like privacy concerns of we don't want the the ad the site hosting the ad to be able to learn about the user based on the ad that Brave places in the site. Like that would be a way of just re-enabling a lot of the same tracking that's happening right now. So we don't we do not do publisher ads right now. We are thinking through like ways that we might be able to do it in the future in a privacy-preserving way. But right now, the only ads that get shown are notifications, new tab page. I see. So the new tab page would be something very similar to when you create a new tab in Firefox and they have like a list of suggested sites, something like that. Yeah, so right now, uh, like Chipotle advertised with Brave for, for a while. And so I think it was like one out of three times you open up the new tab page, it would have a you know an image of a delicious breed or whatever in the lower right-hand corner. I'd say Chipotle or whatever. Like, you know, attractive mm-hmm. images, not a, it's not executing code. It's not doing animations. It looks attractive, that kind of thing. But it's just mm-hmm. an image. And if you don't like it, you can turn it off. But if you like it, then Brave will pay you to, to look at it. Interesting. Yeah, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of back in the past, there were desktop applications that people could install. And I think they paid you, I don't remember if it was to click on the ads or, or just to see the ads. And this sort of sounds like a bit of a, a modern kind of version of that. I think that's true. Although, I mean, a bunch of things distinguish it. One is that like the bonsai buddies of the world like ended up becoming malware vectors. Uh, Two is that they didn't have the kind of information that would be useful to actually like send you the kinds of ads you were interested in. They just pulled from a stock catalog. They were extremely obtrusive. I don't. I, I'm not aware of any ones that, that paid you act, like actual money or like a significant amount of money. I mean, but the, the, they might have existed. I, I couldn't say that they don't. One other thing that I want to say though that I think is is exciting to me about the Brave model is like there is a sincere, honest question about like how do how does content on the web get funded, and like. Advertising is, is not the only, but it's a, a significant part of how content on the on the web is funded currently. Brave's approach is different. Right now, if you enable ads, by default, that money goes to the websites you visit. I have my browser configured to show me five ads an hour, and at the end of every month, it Brave keeps track on the browser, not on the server, but the, the browser keeps track of these are the, you know, this is the distribution of your viewing time across the sites that you visit. And if you don't, and by default, Brave will just send your ad earnings to those sites. 
the the sites that are involved that like that are are verified sites they get revenue very similar to or if not greater than than the revenue they would get for you looking at an ad that was you know in an iframe on their page but without the privacy harm without the you know all the, the nasty side effects so I think this can be a really like powerful way of, of funding the open web but without all the the horrible stuff that comes comes with it currently yeah I mean I, I think that what you're seeing with a lot of news publications and and even just people doing blogs and things like that is a lot of people are moving towards a subscription model, right? Where you pay me five bucks a month and you can see my articles. And I think what's what's tricky is that, you know, the web is so is so broad, right? You visit so many different sites a day. And so it's hard to imagine paying a monthly fee for every single site you visit. And yeah, so I'm, I'll, I'll be interested to see how that kind of model works out in the future. Yeah, uh, and I should say too that uh, not, it's all in exploratory stages, but but an idea that Brave is considering and, and may prototype at some point is, can we have some sort of like, if someone opts into the Brave system, then then Brave can be the way that you just automatically pass through those paywalls using BAT, the, the cryptocurrency that you get paid in, uh, in Brave, is a way of saying, I don't want to have a subscription to, to a million different sites. If I'm in Brave, then I just automatically do these these invisible microtransactions to, to fund the sites that I'm viewing. I think there's something compelling about that. Yeah, for sure. Everybody loves complaining about paywalls. Totally. <laughs> yeah, no joke. Cool. Well, I, I think that's a good place to start wrapping up. Is there is there anything else you think I should have asked or you wanted to mention? Nothing else comes to mind. I think this has been really enjoyable. I, I, well, actually, well, I, I can say two things. One is that uh, if you're, any of your listeners are interested in privacy and web standards, like it is a forum that could absolutely use more voices and more people who, yeah, a, a greater diversity of opinion than, than people who work at browser vendors or ad tech companies. And so if any of your listeners are interested in those sorts of things, uh, I would encourage them to get involved. They can send me a message or they can just go to the issues themselves. But that would be fantastic to have more people involved there. And the second one is, I imagine that a large portion of your listeners are people who write software for, for a living or, or who are considering careers in writing software for a living. And a little bit soapboxy, but I, you know, that's a powerful thing and a privileged position for many people. And I would, it's worth thinking really, really well through like the morality of the kinds of causes you're spending your nine to five like supporting. And where can people, if they want to see what you're working on currently, where can they, they check out what you're doing? Ah, so I have a website called petereastnider.com where I have my publications and my research interests. Um, a lot of the publications I work on at Brave get published at Brave slash research. I write pretty regularly for the Brave blog about new privacy features that are coming out in Brave. And I will be writing as an additional set of articles on the Brave blog about um, standards work and, and the direction that privacy interests in, in web standards. Also, uh, I'm on Twitter at PES10K. Cool. I think you gave everyone a lot to think about in terms of privacy and in terms of what's going on in their browsers. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much, Jeremy. This has been super fun. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my chat with Pete. You can get show notes and a transcript for this episode at softwaresessions.com. The music in this episode was by Crystal Cola. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to tell someone else about it. All right. I'll see you next time.